chapter 17. We're going to be looking at that in a little bit. In his book, A Mile Wide, Brandon Hatmaker shares about a trip that he took to Ethiopia with a friend of his by the name of Steve Fitch. Now, Steve Fitch was the was the founder of a project called Eden Project, and what had happened in many countries of the world is deforestation left parts of many countries, especially Ethiopia, basically barren. Generation after generation had come and stripped all the, t- all the trees out, leaving barren land. And Eden Project was going to Ethiopia to reforest that area. In fact, their goal was to plant 100 million trees. Well, Brandon was on the plane going to Ethiopia, and he was having second thoughts about his trip. First of all, he had a fear of flying. Second of all, he was leaving his family behind, and he also wondered what difference his trip would make. And he was feeling kind of bad about the fact that his attitude was bad, and so he, he bowed his head and he prayed this prayer. He said, God, I'm sorry. I'm trying, but I just don't get it. I don't want to be on this plane. I feel like I'm wasting my time and money. God, if this is important to you, would you please help me overcome my ignorance and my doubt and my blindness? Will you connect the dots and show me what I'm missing? Amen. Well, he had no longer said, no sooner said amen, than an Ethiopian man sitting on the plane next to him asking, asked him, why are you going to Ethiopia? Well, he could have given a, a different answer. He could have said, well, I'm going for a humanitarian cause. I'm going to do a ministry. But he simply said, I'm going to plant trees. Well, the lady sitting beside this Ethiopian man talked to her, to her what, became, what was her son in the language of Ethiopia, Americ, and... And then after, after a short while, he, the lady got up and on the plane, and she began to stand up and started waving her hands, and she started kind of crying and acting like what she had been told had made a difference in her life. Well, Brandon said, what's going on? He said, my mother just asked me why you were going to Ethiopia. Well, what did you tell her? He said, I told her that you were going to plant trees. And then Brandon said, well, what, why the response? And then Brandon's seatmate told her, told him, that his mother had been praying for 38 years that God would forgive her people for stripping their land. And she had also been praying for God to send someone to plant trees. And before Brandon knew what was happening, this woman was laying her hands on Brandon's head and praying for him through her tears of joy. At that point, friends, Brandon had no more questions about whether or not what he was doing was going to make a difference. The question I have for each of us this morning is this. What is it that God has for you to do in the new year? I guarantee you there's a plan he has for this new year. Something that might be an answer to possibly someone else's prayer. You see, we have a year, we have 12 months, we have 365 days, and God has a plan for you. Now, is your prayer this? God, show me what your plan is for these next 12 months. God, I'm ready. I will do what you say. I will obey you as you give me your strength. This morning, we not only want to talk about what God's plan is for you, but we also want to talk about why God has a plan for you. 
In 2009, and you've heard me refer to this book before, Simon Sinek wrote a book called Start With Why. And in his book, he makes the assertion that knowing why you do something is more important than what you do. Now, when we're coming to New Year's, anybody here make a New Year's resolution? It's a famous time of year for New Year's resolutions. And Simon Sinek suggests, asserts, that there are basically two reasons people make New Year's resolutions. Two motivators. The first motivator is fear. The second motivation is aspiration. Now, if you went into a bank with a banana in your coat pocket and went up to the teller and demanded money, that you would be arrested if caught for armed robbery. Because fear is a motivator. And even though they can't see the banana, the fact that you have something in your pocket that looks like a gun would be enough evidence to incite fear where they would give you money and you would be convicted of a crime. Now, if you went into the bank and waved a banana, they would take you away, but it wouldn't be to jail. Fear motivates us to change. Your doctor comes to you and says, you know, you need to lose some weight or you're going to have a heart attack. Your boss comes to you and says, either increase sales here or you're through. So you make a resolution to make 30 calls a day to get your numbers up. Now, here's the problem. Fear is like bathing. It doesn't last. We recommend it every day. Fear doesn't last. And as soon as the fear dissipates, so does your ability to maintain what you are committed to do. The second thing that moves people is aspiration. We aspire to be different. Some people aspire to quit quit smoking. Mark Twain once said, quitting smoking is the easiest thing I've ever done. I've quit hundreds of times. See, we aspire to lose weight. We aspire to read more books. We aspire to get into a certain pant or dress size. So we get a gym membership unaware that gym memberships rise about 12% every January and yet only a fraction of those aspiring fitness fanatics will still be in the gym at the end of the year. So aspiring to do something doesn't mean it will get done. It is a hope, it is a desire, possibly it is a whim. So what's the answer? What is it that can motivate us to stay with something? And let me suggest that it is the why. Now for us, how do you and I maintain a lifestyle of living for God's glory? In 1 Corinthians chapter one, chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says this. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. See, in earlier in this chapter, in verse 23, Paul talks about the importance of loving people. And he says, Whatever, however you love them, you are to love them for the good of the other person. That's the why. Why do we love them? For their good. He then goes on to talk about whether or not we should eat or not eat food that's been offered to idols. And he said, the why of that is the thing that you don't want to do, you don't want to in any way deter them from following God. So your why, whether you eat it or not eat it, is to keep them following God. And then he goes on with a broader subject and he says, whatever you do, whether it's eating or drinking or getting married, whether it's your work, whether it's what you do in your leisure time, everything that you and I do, we are to do for the glory of God. Now, what does it mean to live for God's glory? To live for God's glory means that you give God a place of high regard in your life. Now, what does it mean to give a place, a person a place of high regard? For me to give Joy, my wife, a place of high regard means that I consider what she likes. I consider what she needs. I consider, I begin to know who she is. And everything I do, giving her a place of high regard means I'm sensitive and I adjust my life. I adjust what I say. I adjust what I do so that she feels that I'm honoring and loving her. 
To glorify God means that we are committed to following the principles that God has given us in his word. To glorify God is to express your love to him by how you live because he has loved us. To glorify means you point other people to God. It means that you trust him enough to follow him and obey him. To glorify God means that you acknowledge that he is great and he is awesome and he is worthy of your obedience and your love. And you say, because of these things, because of how you've changed my life, God, everything in my life, I want to glorify you. Now, let's, let's turn this into a practical application from 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 17, we read that the Israelite army is in war against the Philistine army. The battle is, a, at, is at a standoff because of a man by the name of Goliath, a soldier named Goliath. He is a brute of a man standing nine feet, nine inches tall. He has solid muscle and has the attitude, the demeanor of a coiled snake. He is ready for a fight that he believes he can win. And every day for 40 days in the Valley of Elam, the Israelites line up on one side in a row. The Philistines line up on the other side. The giant Goliath comes out from the Philistine side and he issues a challenge. And he says, why get everybody involved? You pick a man to come fight me. Whoever wins the battle, the other team, the other side will be the servants to the victors. Now, how did the men of Israel, did the the soldiers, did the army of Israel respond to Goliath? I'm going to read a bit of an extended portion of Scripture, but I believe it's important to get the idea and the context for what's happening. But the question initially is, how did the Israelite army respond to Goliath? Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man and who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David had been sent. Now, at this point, let me insert. David had been sent by his father, Jesse, to see how his older three brothers were, were doing. His older three brothers were soldiers in the battle, and he comes up on the battle scene at the exact time that Goliath is issuing this challenge. And he begins to ask questions about this and says, what will the king give? And it becomes apparent that David is interested in taking on the giant Goliath. Verse 31, and when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has used, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised, uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the army to the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried to go in vain for he had not tested them. 
Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. Now understand that the shield bearer was probably a bigger man than David was. So to give you kind of an idea of the context. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. What a statement. I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to kill you. Then I'm going to cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Now what is it? We want to look at this passage and first of all answer this question. What is it that keeps you and I from from living for the glory of God? Which causes us to say, God, this is keeping me from living for your glory. Number one, Number, the first thing that keeps us from living for God's glory is fear. Now, verse 24 says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Friends, in the same way that fear kept the Israelites from taking on the giant Goliath, fear can keep you and I from doing what will bring God's glory. It will point other, what would point others to God? It will keep us from doing those things that will point others to God. When we are afraid of offending someone, we are quiet. When we are fearful of rejection, we move back. When we are afraid that we will fail, we don't even start. We don't even try. Sometimes when I look at my life, fear creeps into my life, and I don't, I don't even know it's there until it's affecting me. And in your life and my life, if we do an analysis of our emotions, if we are aware of what we feel, I think we'll be surprised at how many times we hold back, we resist, become a fear, because of fear. So what do we do to keep fear from taking priority over faith? See, what fear does, fear replaces faith. Let me tell you the story of what one person did. On February 19, 1519, the Spanish explorer Hernan Cortez set sail from Mexico. He set sail with 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. Now, at this time in history, there were approximately 5 people, 5 million people living in Mexico. Now, if you add that up as far as odds, that meant the odds between the soldiers that Cortez had and the people living in Mexico was 7,541 to 1. Two previous expeditions had failed to establish even one new settlement in the country. So Hernan Cortez understood that his men were going to be fearful and he needed to do something to keep them on task. Now what he is purported to do is the things legends are made of. Knowing that the men would be fearful, knowing that they would want to return home, he issued this order. He said, burn the ships. 
And as the crew watched, their fleet of ships were lit on fire and sunk. Returning home, giving in to fear was no longer an option because they dealt with it. Friends, I don't know what you have to do. I don't always know what I have to do. But this is what I do know. To the degree that fear controls me, to that degree, I'm not going to reach my potential for God. To the degree that I allow fear to become the controlling motivator, the emotion that controls me, to that degree, God is not going to get the glory in my life. So we have to say, God, you know I have the tendency to be fearful. Will you give me what I need? Will you help me? Will you surround me with people who give me courage? Will you give me your Holy Spirit? Will you give me small victories, God, so that I can do greater victories that, that are not, so I am not controlled by the fear that can encompass and knock me off my horse? The second thing that can keep us from living for God's glory is negative peer pressure. It says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. What was their response? All the men of Israel fled, and the rest of them said, have you seen this man? He is invincible. This dude is huge. There is no way any of us can stand up against him and fight and be the victor. We will be killed. We will be cut to shreds. Friends, this is it. You and I need to surround ourselves with those people who will move us into living for God's glory and not discourage us from doing what God has called us to do. Who do you listen to more? The can't be done group or the God will do in you what he's called you to do group? Do people you give your time to move you towards God or tell you not to go overboard, not to be unreasonable about concerning how you live for God? The Bible is filled with the names of men and women who chose to believe God rather than to listen to what could be described as rational Christianity. Do we have a small view of God or a great view of God? Are we fully committed to a God that we believe can do more than we could ever hope or imagine? And let me restate this. Rational Christianity is not what God called us to. Rational Christianity will keep us from living to the glory of God to the extent God wants us to live for it. God wants us to live in a different way, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. The third thing that keeps us from living lives that bring glory to God is not understanding what's at stake. Sometimes we forget what is not at stake when we, when we back away from living for God's glory. Verses 26 and verse 46. I'm going to read these two verses from 1 Samuel 17. Verse 26 says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away their approach from Israel? For who, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide, defy the armies of the living God? In this passage, he is saying, Who is this man? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who thinks that he can stand up against God? And then... Verse 46, the day the Lord will deliver, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, David speaking to Goliath, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the Israel, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now here's the point. Both of these verses give us the reason for why David stood up to Goliath. He understood this, that if no one came and fought Goliath and won, the word would be out that the God of Israel was not that big a deal, that he was not the God he claimed to be, that, there, that the Israelite God was weaker than an ordinarily, ordinarily large man. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. The, the God of the Israelites is limited, and he can be won against. The army of Israel, friends, saw a giant 
They did not see what all the other nations would see if they were defeated. Defeated. God, David fought for God and for his honor and for his glory. That the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel. Here's the question. Based on how we live as a church, based on how we function as a church, what does the outside community know about our God? Based on what people know about you personally, based on how you live, based on how you, what you do and what you say, what you say, what do people know about your God? What do people know about my God based on how I live and how based on, on how you live? Do we understand what's at stake for not living a life of courageous faith, bold, unmerited faith? To say, God, I'm going to glorify your name. And to glorify, I believe, means to take such a stand that people never doubt who God is and what he can do. Now let's switch this, go to the other side of the coin now. How do we live for God's glory? What does David teach us about what it means to live for the glory of God? Number one, the first thing that David did that we need to do is, if I'm going to live for the glory of God, I will remember God's faithfulness in the past. Now, King Saul, at this point, is talking to David, and he is questioning whether David has what it takes to beat the giant Goliath. David then gives him a recounting. He says, you know, King, when I was out taking care of my dad's sheep, there was a lion, there was a bear, I killed both of them. If there was a lamb in their hands, I took the lamb out of, in their mouth, I took it out of their mouth, I grabbed him by the beard, and I slayed him. And he said, in the same way, in the same way that I took care of bears and lions, I can take care of this Philistine. And this, uns- and he then at last he says, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Here's the point, friends. The experience you have with God today will prepare you for what God will have you do in the future. Your experience of God now prepares you for what you believe God will do with you in the future. The experiences we do not take or that limit God will keep us from being used by God. Friends, I believe that for all of us, we want to live lives where we honor God and where we use the experiences of today to do something greater for God tomorrow. And I, for one, do not want to be regretting living my life safely or rationally. I want to be bold. Friends, I would rather make a mistake for the glory of God than not do anything and not make a mistake. I would rather live by faith and say, God, I'm trusting you than to live a safe life where I don't have to worry about anything happening to me. Dr. Glenn Reed served as a missionary in the Middle East for more than 50 years. And everyone who knew Dr. Reed respected him. And they were surprised when he was 82 years old, he made this confession. He said, I have failed throughout my life because I have let fear and prudence be my gods while I avoided trusting God. And then he told about a time on the mission field when God prompted him to share the gospel with a group of cannibals. And Dr. Reed at that point chose not to share the gospel. And you know why he didn't? His his excuse was prudence. Prudence means to be careful especially in regards to the future. Not sharing the gospel with these cannibals ended up being one of the greatest regrets of his life. Friends, we are not to bow down to the God of prudence. Faith is not illogical or logical. It is theological. It is about what we believe about God. Faith is not prudent it is, or imprudent. It is valiant, boldly courageous, stout-hearted, and brave. It was not, friends, bottom line is, it was not prudent 
for David to face off against Goliath. It was valiant. It was courageous. And here's the question. What do you want to leave for people to see in your life? You know what an inheritance is? An inheritance is what you leave for someone. You know what a legacy is? A legacy is what you leave in someone. We want our lives to leave a legacy that I want to follow that example. We want to be victors. We want to be people of faith. We want to know what's at stake. And we want to say, God, my past experiences of what I'm doing today, may it be a stepping stone for doing something greater for you tomorrow. May we never live a rational, complacent faith. May we live a faith where we see God moving, where we have a testimony because we have passed the test. The third, the second thing, to live for God's glory, I will refuse to, veer, refuse to fear those who oppose God. Verse 36 is one of my favorite verses of this whole passage because of what David says. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. What did David call Goliath? He called him an uncircumcised Philistine. Friends, that was not a compliment. He was making a statement against this Goliath. Circumcision was a mark that identified every Israelite man as a man of God, a man of the covenant. And when David called Goliath an uncircumcised man, he was saying that here is a man who has no relationship with God. Here is a man who is unfamiliar with God. Here is a man who does not understand God as you and I are to understand him. And if we are not careful... Or aware, we can become afraid or even intimidated by those who oppose God because we forget that they don't know Him. We forget that they're not living with the same Holy Spirit living in them. See, friends, with you and you plus God is a majority. Me plus God is a majority. David does not seem to be afraid of Goliath. He does not even seem to be intimidated by his size and strength. Why? Because he knew that Goliath did not know God and that he was no match for God. Friends, we need to understand and we need to remember, we need to meditate on the fact that our God is an awesome God. Our God is a great, He is mighty, He is all-knowing, He is all-powerful. There is nothing He can't do. And friends, whenever He calls me or you to do something, He will call us, assuring us of His presence and His strength and His power to do it. He is asking us not to be rational, but to be valiant and to live lives of faith. Number three, to live for God's glory, I will not be held back by my limitations. In verses 38 to 42, Saul is trying to give David his armor because he thinks that that David's stones and his slingshot is not enough. And so David gets all this armor of King Saul on, and this is what he says, I cannot go in these, he protested to Saul, for I have not used them, so David took them off. See, what What Saul saw as being inadequate, David's slingshot and stones, you know how David saw them? He saw them as being tested, as being something that God has used. Friends, this is the point. What God has used in your life in the past, he will continue to use in the future, and he will build on it. In verses 42 to 44, listen to how Goliath identifies and how what he thinks of David. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Do you come to me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Goliath was offended that this is all the Israelites could find. You got all these soldiers over here and you're sending me somebody who's not even dressed in battle gear, who brings a staff and the slingshot, who's dressed like a shepherd. What are you talking about? You, you, I'm, a, I'm a soldier and you send a teenager, that, uh, not a soldier. He has no armor. He has no fighting experience, no battle training. You know what Mark Twain said once? He said, it's not, the saw, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And let me tell you what, David had a God in him that put fight in him that no one could compare to. Saul looked at David's limitations and tried to shore him up, and David would not have it. Friends, I don't know what your strengths are, I don't know what your weaknesses are, but I do know this, that God can do more with the weaknesses and seeming limitations of one who knows their God than he can do with a a proud individual who is trained to the extent who does not know God. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes too. But the issue is never allow your limitations to be an excuse for not being used. Say, God, my limitations are a perfect opportunity for you to show your strength and your glory and your power. Today, Lord God, I give myself to you. I offer to you what I have, whether it be strength or limitations. Use me for your glory. And friends, we start taking steps out, seeing God direct us, seeing God use us, seeing God equip and put us in a position where our lives can be changed. Number four, to live for God's glory, I will go in God's strength. I love what David says in verse 45. The Philistine had just said, I'm going to do all this. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, with all your training, with all your expertise, but I come to you. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In Daniel 11.32, there's a statement that Daniel makes that I just love. And this is what he says. He said, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. He doesn't just say that people that know their God shall stand firm. He says, the people that know their God, they shall stand firm. They shall not be pushed back. They will not be allowed to... to to in any way defy what they know is true. I will, they will stand firm and they will take action. David told Goliath, he said, you come to me with a sword. You come to me with a spear. You come to me with a javelin. But I come to you with the God that I know. I come to you with a God who has been faithful. I come to you with a God who has shown himself strong. I come to you with a God who day after day meets my needs. You can come to me with all the stuff you want. But I come to you in the strength of my God. David killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. Friends, it could have been a BB gun. He could have ran under his legs and tripped him and broke his neck. David does not mention his weapon. You know what he mentions? He mentions his God. When we come into battle, we have to realize that our greatest source of victory is not the abilities we have. It's the God we serve. It's the God who equips us and fills us and places us in a, puts us in a place where through his power there is nothing we cannot do as he strengthens us. Number five, knowing God... And living for his glory means I will take action. Again, Daniel 11.32, and the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. David knew his God well, and in verse 48 it says, as, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Goliath moved, he walked, David ran toward Goliath. Friends, there's a time when we have to move from analysis to action. Fear can keep us thinking about something, and there comes a time when we have to act on what we know is right to do. David, with experience behind him and with God with him, moved out in aggressive confidence. 
There are times that we can't sit and ponder something. There comes a time where we have talked it out. And friends, I believe God calls us to be aggressive. I would just suggest that there is a time to reflect, but there is a time to, with confidence and with, insura- and with assurance, take the battle to the enemy. Friends, we are in a spiritual battle. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 5. He says a final word, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Now that is a battle cry statement. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and against authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Sometimes we mistakenly believe that our resistance is from here. And what this passage says, it says that we might see the resistance here, but there is a spiritual battle going on between the powers in heaven, between the angels and the demons. And our battle is only going to be won if we do what he says. Be strong in the Lord and in his power. Put on God's armor so that you may be able to stand, stand against the, the powers of the enemy. We are called to go out in armor. We are called to put on the armor of God, to go out in God's mighty strength, to take the battle to them, to not wait and see what happens, but to go out and determine what will happen, to pray aggressive, to love intentionally, to confront with loving truth, to bring about a result, and to stand firm and be seen as a soldier of the Almighty God who is willing to take a step and defy those who are defying God. And number six, to live for God's glory, I will leave leave no doubt concerning the victory. And I love what David does. This dude is something else. I mean, he has got courage, and he knows his God. I love verse 54. And David took the head of the Philistine after he cut that thing off, and he brought it to Jerusalem. He put his armor in his tent, but he took the, the head of Goliath, and he marched it through Jerusalem. Why did he do that? There was a reason, friends, because he wanted everyone know, to know that the battle was won, that God had won. Why did David take Goliath's head into Jerusalem? Why did he confront the giant when all the trained men wouldn't? There was a reason that David did what he did, and the reason for him and the reason for you and I is in 1 Samuel 46 and 47. Why did he take the head of Goliath into Jerusalem, so that all the earth might know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly, this assembly gathered here in Minot, North Dakota today, may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. In Joshua 4, and 1 Kings 8, and 2 Kings 19, we read these same words, that all nations, that all people of the world would know that the Lord's hand is powerful, and that you alone, O Lord, are God. Why do we live for God's glory and with everything we do and say? So the whole world will know. will know that our God is the Lion of Judah. And he is a suffering Savior who paid to die for our sin. We are to be stand firm and we are to take action. Why? Because we know our God. I'd like to ask those who are helping with communion to come at this point. And as you come, I'd like to share a story. There was a group of fishermen who had fished all day and had gone to an inn to have supper. And as they were sitting at supper, a serving waitress was walking past this group of men with a pot of tea, and under the fisherman made a sweeping gesture to describe the size of a fish that he claimed to have caught, and when he threw his leg sideways, threw his arm sideways, his hand caught the pot of tea and threw it against a white wall, and the tea came out and stained the wall irreparably. Standing nearby, the innkeeper surveyed the damage, and he said, that stain will never come out. The whole wall will have to be painted. 
And then there was a voice from a man behind him that said, Perhaps not, and all eyes turned to the, sta- turned to the stra- this stranger who had just spoken. What do you mean, asked the innkeeper. He says, Let me work with the stain, and if my work meets your approval, you maybe won't need to repaint the wall. Well, the stranger picked up a box and went to the wall. He withdrew pencils and brushes and some glass jars of linseed oil and pigment. He began to sketch lines around the stain and fill it in here and there with dabs of color and swashes of shading. And when he was done, the random splashes of tea had been turned into the image of a great stag, a great buck, with a magnificent rack of antlers. And at the bottom of the picture, the man inscribed his signature. Well, the innkeeper was stunned when he examined the wall, and then he looked at the signature, and he said, do you know who that was? The signature, E.H. Lanzier. They had been visited that day by the well-known British painter of wildlife, Sir Edwin Lanzier. This is the point. When we come to communion, this is the point. Perhaps in your life there are stains. There are things that you have done that your conscience gives you constant guilt over. Or perhaps there are disappointments of things you would hope would happen differently and they have not. Maybe it's a disability or a disease that's getting you down. Any, of number, any, of no, any number of things can be stains in my life and in yours. But here's the good news. Here's the news of grace, friends. That God can turn a stain in your life into a thing of beauty. He can change your adversity into asset. Each negative thing he can turn into a masterpiece. If an artist can do that with an ugly brown stain of tea, what can God do with the stains of my life if I'm willing to give them to him? The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That is the message of communion. That is a message of grace. That God not only in his grace forgives our sin, he then takes the other messes of our lives and he makes them in masterpieces. God is not limited by your failure. He is able to take everything about you if surrendered to him and use it as something for his glory and for your good to tell the world that there is a God and he is alive.